It's great to see you this evening. Wonderful to see all the, the good discussion taking place. Let's look to the Lord and ask that He would grant us understanding as we consider another vital topic related to the Christian mind. Let's pray. Father, now as we quiet our hearts, we ask that you would teach us now through your word as we look at this next topic, the topic of the lifting of the veil, your work of regeneration in the life of a sinner who is brought by your sovereign power to faith. As we look at this very important topic, may you increase our love for you and your gracious work in our lives, especially as that relates to what you have done to our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our topic for this evening is entitled, The Lifting of the Veil. As we have looked at this topic of the Christian mind so far, we've established the fact that That Jesus has commanded us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. Yet as we looked at last week, that does not come to us naturally. In our natural state, we do not want to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, or mind. We do not want to and we are not able to. Natural man, mankind in general, does not and cannot love God with the mind. And we certainly see that in our culture today. Just this last Friday, uh, there was a bill that was passed in the House of Representatives, a bill related to abortion. One of the most radical bills to come through the Congress ever. And we know that God has, God sets up kingdoms and He sets up governments. Some of the times when He sets up governments and kingdoms, He does so for the blessing of the people. And other times He does that to give people over to their dark minds. And we saw an evidence of that just this past Friday in response to a bill called H.R. 3755, called the Women's Health Protection Act of 2021, the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party, 220 members in the chamber, all but two of them voted in support of this radical bill that was written to prevent states, if passed fully, to prevent states from imposing any restrictions on the murder of preborn babies. That is the darkness of man's mind. A whole party, a whole political party of the government of this country sold out to the killing, to the great injustice of killing preborn babies in the womb. It is their central party, or a central platform. It is what defines the Democratic Party, and that is the party currently in rule. And then the question is asked, they want us to trust them when at the most basic issue of life, they fail. That is 
the darkening of man's mind. And, and according to Romans chapter 1, we see that play out for us day after day in what is very clearly becoming an intensifying, an intensifying position. Romans chapter 1 talks about the depravity of man and the noetic effect, but so does Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the text that we studied last week. This is what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago. He said this to them, and this is what we looked at last week. He said, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. As we looked at that text last week, as we looked at the darkening of the mind, we saw how the effects of sin in the mind lead to this intellectual bankruptcy. And that intellectual bankruptcy leads to spiritual hostility toward God, and in the end, it leads to the display, the outworking of all kinds of moral degeneracy. You can go to the most expensive Ivy League school, you can get a PhD, you can cure a disease or invent some kind of life-improving technology, yet on your own, because of the effect of sin in your mind, your thinking will be corrupt and your thinking will be completely displeasing to God. In the natural state, the human mind will always suppress the truth. And the problem, as we've, we talked last week, the problem is not with the clarity of God's revelation. He has made it clear in His general revelation and creation, and He has made it clear in the gospel message, and yet every time on His own, man, because of the noetic effect of sin in his mind, will always reject God's Word. It's summed up well for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man is marked by an intellectual bias and even an intellectual inability He cannot accept, nor can he accept, the revelation of God. He cannot love the Lord his God with his mind, nor with his soul, nor with his heart. This is our story. This is mankind. So where are we to find hope? How can a person whose mind has been, whose mind has been affected by sin to this degree, how can there be any hope for the mind? And that is our focus for this evening. There is hope. That hope in the transformation of the mind, in dealing with the noetic effect of sin on the mind, is not found in man himself. He will never reason himself out of sin. He can never cure his own mind. 
But that does not leave him without hope. There is hope, and it is the emphasis of the Word of God. There is hope, and it is found in the power of God through Jesus Christ. A key text in this regard is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, where Paul, speaking to the, the Corinthians, discusses the hardness of the Jewish mind. Now remember, the Jews were the recipients of the covenants. The Jews were the recipients of God's special promises. The Jews were the recipients of the prophets and their preaching and their writing. They were the most privileged of all the nations. God had, God had shown His grace toward them in giving them so much special revelation. And yet they too, just like the Gentiles, no distinction, they too suffer from the blindness of their minds. And Paul writes this about their state. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of that which was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person returns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The removal of the veil is our hope. That's where we find our hope. So what is Paul referring to here when he refers to the removal of the veil? Well, just a few points of review and then we'll get into this very important topic. First of all, let's remember that sin has corrupted every aspect of man's being and this we call total depravity. It does not mean that man is as sinful in his actions and behavior as he possibly could be. That is not the meaning of total depravity. When we use the title total depravity, we're referring to the fact that sin has totally corrupted the individual. All of Adam's sons are corrupted by sin in every aspect of their being. Sin has reached everywhere into man's essence and has corrupted it all. That is what we mean by Total depravity it means there's not one component of you, one aspect of your being that is somehow holy or even neutral. There is none. It is all corrupted. Since corruption of the mind in particular, rendering the mind both unwilling and unable to think God's thoughts after him, to love God with the mind, we call that the noetic effect of sin. Remember that. It's a term that you'll read of often in theological literature. The word nous means mind, the Greek word nous. And so we say or use the term noetic to refer to the mind. And so when we use the phrase the noetic effect of sin, it's referring to sin's impact on the mind. Now the solution to this problem must be as comprehensive as the problem itself. We cannot have a solution that does not reach as far as sin has reached. The solution to the sin problem, the solution 
what we will call new life, must reach as far as sin itself has reached, which means that the solution must impact all of man's being, all of it, including the mind. And the effect of this solution, the effect of new life, which makes the mind now ready and willing and able to think rightly, able to love God, that we will call the noetic effects of regeneration. The noetic effects of regeneration. Now, when we raise this topic of regeneration, especially as it relates to the mind, we need to focus on two questions. What exactly does God do to the mind in regeneration? What does God do to the mind in regeneration? And the second question is, what do we experience in the mind as God regenerates us? What do we experience in the mind? What does God do and what do we experience? Let's look at both of those questions. And the first is this, what God does to the mind, to the sinful mind, to man's sinful mind in regeneration. We must begin here because we must begin with God's activity. We must remember that the noetic effects of sin has left man's mind totally unable to reason himself out of his predicament. There is no hope on man's side. He is totally corrupted. And so if there is a solution, and there is, it must begin with God. And it does. We begin with God's activity. And we define regeneration as the sovereign, gracious, radical work of God in which He implants new life into the dead sinner. Let me say that again. Regeneration is the sovereign, gracious, and radical work of God in which He implants, He imparts new life into a dead sinner. That's what regeneration is. Sinclair Ferguson has defined it this way, and this is helpful. He says this, quote, Regeneration is consequently as all-pervasive as depravity. Regeneration reverses that depravity and is universal in the sense that while the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be, there is no part of life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work. So again, when we think of the the work, God's work of regeneration, we see that it goes as far as sin has reached. There is no component in man. There is no element. There's no territory in man's being that has been corrupted by sin that is not touched, that is not renewed by this work of regeneration. As I said, it is sovereign in that it is God and His Freedom, God working on His own without any participation on our parts. And we see that especially in some of the vocabulary used, especially in John chapter 3, where Jesus defines regeneration as being born again. He uses the concept of birth. And as we all know, no one births births themselves. No one has a, a say in that. 
That all comes about as God's sovereign work. It is gracious in that regeneration is never a merited act. No one ever deserves regeneration. We who have experienced it, none of us have ever, even one iota, deserved regeneration. It is solely a gracious act given not because of us, but in spite of us. And it is radical because it affects all of our being. This renewing work of regeneration impacts the mind. As we said, regeneration goes as far as sins reach, and therefore, because sin has reached into the mind and has corrupted the mind, regeneration goes there. And regeneration transforms the mind from being unwilling and unable to think God's thoughts after Him in a way that is pleasing to God. It transforms that sinful mind that is unable to love God. It transforms that mind, gives it life, so that that dead mind now is alive and now is both willing and able to think God's thoughts, is both willing and able to love God with the mind. MacArthur and Mayhew in their textbook on biblical doctrine state it this way, and note the references here to the mind, to thinking, to apprehension. They say this about regeneration, quote, In regeneration then, the Spirit opens the blind eyes of the mind, replacing, as it were, the mind of flesh with the mind of the Spirit. Indeed, with the mind of Christ Himself, so that the regenerate man appraises all things that he once could not understand. Now, if you're in Christ, you resonate with that. You know that there was a time when the gospel did not make sense. It was unappealing. It was even foolish to you. But something changed. The light switch came on. And that which was once foolish and unappealing became inherently and infinitely beautiful and attractive. And all of a sudden, that mind which refused to love God and think His thoughts in a way that would please Him, all of a sudden, that mind was changed, and now the desire was to think about God and to think about Him with love and adoration, to think about Him faithfully, to learn about Him more, to deepen understanding, to clarify understanding. And that is the work of regeneration. Bringing that new desire and ability to life. Now, Scripture describes the noetic effects of regeneration in vivid imagery. In fact, it's, it's fascinating to note this, that because this is such a miraculous, supernatural act of God, the biblical writers use various images to try to describe what is very profound. But all of these images as it relates to regeneration and the mind, all of these images make sense to us. It helps, uh, the, they help us understand what is taking place in the act of regeneration. One of them, and we've looked at this already, is the imagery of the removal of a veil. The removal of a veil. That is one of the ways that biblical writers describe the noetic effect of regeneration. The veil is lifted. We saw this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 already. 
Notice again this text that Paul writes regarding the Jews. He says this, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. But then he says this, Because it is removed in Christ. The veil is removed. It is lifted. The blindfold is taken away. Paul goes on, he says, But to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul uses a special word there for veil. In fact, he uses it nowhere else in his writings. And the, at first, in, in, in verse 13, he uses the word veil to refer to a literal veil. The veil that Moses would put over his face because of the glory that radiated from it from his from his fellowship with, with Yahweh. But then he transitions in verses 14 to 16 to use the term veil three additional times. And here the idea is not of a literal curtain, but here the idea is of a covering that prevents right understanding. That's the veil. There is a covering over us that prevents right understanding. And that cover has been placed there by sin. But regeneration, the impartation of new life, removes the veil. There is another image that is used throughout Scripture to refer to the noetic effect of of regeneration. And it is the idea of giving sight to the blind giving sight to the blind. For example, in Isaiah 42, we have one of the servant songs, and here Yahweh says this to His servant. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as light to the nations, to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. The Apostle Paul will use the same concept, the same imagery in Acts chapter 26 where he, he gives his testimony of his meeting with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he retells the commission that he was given by the Lord himself And this is what the Lord says to him. The Lord had said to him that he is sending Paul to open their eyes, to open their eyes so that they might turn, so that they might turn from darkness to light. That is the concept of image, of of regeneration. We also have the the imagery of enlightenment, very related to the previous one. The imagery of enlightenment, the idea of shining light. If we go back to that text in, in 2 Corinthians, after Paul uses the reference to the veil in chapter 3, he moves on to use another image of regeneration in chapter 4, specifically in verses 3 to 6. He writes this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light 
shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's regeneration. That's regeneration. In that miraculous act of God that is sovereign, that is gracious, that is radical, God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our lives. And as He does so for the first time, Christ to us appears infinitely beautiful. And that concept of light then is a key term that is used throughout the New Testament to describe who we are. Because we have been regenerated, because light has shone in our minds, because He's given us knowledge, we are called, for example, children of light in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Children of light, not because we always live consistently with our calling, but we're called children of light because of that regenerating work that God has done in our minds. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, we have the same idea presented where Paul says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's another image. It's the image of instruction. This too describes the effects of regeneration in the mind of the regenerate individual. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verses 44 to 45. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. They shall all be taught of God. A reference there to to Isaiah chapter 54 verse 14. Jesus quotes it, referring to the promise of regeneration that would come to the nation of Israel as a whole. He quotes that to describe regeneration in this context. And he says, They shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That language is regeneration language. And while we might think of the process of learning as a lifelong process, when it is used in these contexts to refer to regeneration, it's not referring to a long, drawn-out process. It is referring to that miraculous event, that activity of God, when He turns on the switch. And in that moment, He teaches us. In that very moment, He instructs our minds, and our minds forever function differently. We'd see that even in 1 John 5 verse 20, which says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Referring again to the work of regeneration. In that moment, there is a kind of learning that takes place that is once and for all, never to be lost And in that sense, it's once and for all in in that it marks that radical turning point. And that knowledge is what then sets the 
sinner who is now regenerated on a brand new course of life, including a brand new course of thinking. We saw that even in Ephesians chapter 4, after that text describing the noetic effects of sin, how man is darkened in understanding, corrupt in his, in his thinking, you have this wonderful statement where Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ. Speaking not of a continuous event, not of a prolonged action, but to a moment. And that's how we are to look on our regeneration. That moment when things changed and new life was imparted, we learned Christ. There is also another imagery. Perhaps this is one of the most powerful images, and that is the image of the new mind. The image of the new mind itself If we go to 1 Corinthians, we see Paul using this imagery there. In this long section which begins in chapter 1 verse 18, Paul is comparing the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. And he in chapter 1 verses 18 to the end of the chapter shows just how unbelieving man, how the world thinks it is so foolish or thinks it's so wise and yet looks on the things of God as utter foolishness. And it's only those who have been called, who have been justified, made righteous, that they are the ones then who can see the wisdom of God and appreciate it and love it. He continues on in this theme into chapter 2, and he gives us this statement. Notice, as we come to the end of the chapter, in chapter 2, Paul says this in verses 14 to 16. He says, a natural man, a natural man, a man on his own, A man who is not regenerated, a natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, he who has life, he who has been made alive, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And when Paul says that, he's not saying that all of a sudden we now have omniscience. That we have all the mysteries that Christ knows now residing in our own minds. That's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is that now as those who have been made alive, who have been made new, we have a totally different framework. We have a totally different worldview. We have a totally different way of looking at God. And now as His children who have been made like Christ, our minds are now made to function analogously to the mind of Christ. That's the miracle that is accomplished in regeneration. That's the miracle. Scripture's frequent emphasis on this connection between new life and enlightenment shows that the mind is the chief focus in God's miraculous work of regeneration. Understand that. So often we can think of salvation more in terms of our our, our senses or our feelings, but the chief focus, the chief achievement, the chief effect of regeneration 
happens to the mind when God takes that ugly, depraved, calloused, darkened mind and He breathes life into it. And at the center of all this is truth. At the center of all this work of God, this miracle, is doctrine. It's knowledge. It's not feelings. It's not some kind of emotionalism. At the center of this regenerating work is truth. The revelation of God. And so while regeneration does indeed affect the whole person, it goes as far in the person as sin is gone, It never takes place, regeneration never takes place without affecting the mind. It never takes place apart from truth. John Owen states this well when he says this, The leading, conducting faculty of the soul is the mind or understanding. Now this is corrupted by the fall as we have already proved, but in regeneration this depravity is removed. So that we come to see spiritual things in a spiritual manner. That we may savingly know God and His will as revealed in and by Jesus Christ. John Calvin said something similar when he stated this. Indeed, the Word of God is like the sun shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed, but with no effect among the blind. Now, all of us are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through His illumination, makes entry for it. And that is exactly what is accomplished in this miraculous work of regeneration. So that is... The answer to the question about what God achieves in the mind through regeneration. Let's look at the next question, our second question now, and it's this. What do we experience? What do we experience in the mind in regeneration? Now, what we experience in the mind is not regeneration itself. In other words, it's not that we produce regeneration. What we experience in the mind is the effect of regeneration. What we experience in the mind is the, is the fruit of regeneration. It's the evidence of regeneration. Regeneration is a transformative act. It transforms us. It enlivens us. And as a result, it instantly, it instantly causes change in the life of the regenerated sinner. And so, these noetic effects of regeneration are particularly seen or experienced in these two things, in repentance and in faith. If we want to think through the experience of of the effects of regeneration, of, of what regeneration does to our minds in terms of how we experience it, how it flows into reality in our in in our existence, we see this through these two things, these two gifts of God, these two divinely created experiences, they're two sides of the same coin and they're these, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Let's look first at the experience of repentance. MacArthur and Mayhew define repentance this way, it is a godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. 
Now that is a basic definition that takes into account the whole survey of Scripture, but we can dig into it a little bit further, and when we do, we realize that repentance is really an experience of the mind. In fact, the most common word used for repentance is the verb metanoeo. Metanoeo, or the noun form of that, metanoia, and At the heart, at the root of that verb and that noun is the Greek word nous, mind. The Greek word mind. And and so repentance is this change of mind. Now we cannot define it simply as a change in, in intellectual awareness, a change of understanding of facts. It's much more comprehensive than that, but it is foundational to the mind. The mind's role in repentance is essential. And this is so important to emphasize in our day and age because so often repentance today is equated with some kind of emotional response. How you feel. You feel bad. And so you just say, well, that's repentance. I feel bad. And that approach to repentance has distorted the biblical teaching on it, which emphasizes at the heart a change of mind that is, that is fundamental. A change of mind that is, is, is earth-shattering in terms of worldview. Matthew Barrett defines repentance this way, and again, notice how it affects the mind, how it's tied to the mind. He says this, quote, Sorrow... And remorse for sin, though essential, are not enough to constitute repentance. Rather, sorrow for sin must be accompanied by a decisive resolve to reject, forsake, renounce, and abandon sin. End quote. Those elements, beyond just sorrow, those elements of rejecting, forsaking, renouncing, and abandoning sin have to do with the mind as it, as it experiences this work of regeneration. We see this, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, a, a reference to repentance. And we could look at many different texts, but this one is a good case, case study, a good example. Here Paul writes this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And those who are in opposition here, have, they're, on the sound, they're on the side of unsound doctrine. They believed in lies. They believed in heresies. And so they opposed the truth. Now notice how Paul describes repentance with respect to them. The Lord's slave must be gentle with such people, Gently correcting, gently putting the truth in front of them. And then you have this clause. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That's not just sorrow of feeling bad. The repentance that is granted by God as a gift is one that fundamentally is connected to the mind and its whole worldview of life. We could see this also in the experience of faith. 
the other side of the coin, the experience of faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is a product. Uh, It's a fruit of regeneration. It's not something that we manufacture. It is a gift of God as well as repentance. But what is faith? Again, when we look at the world around us and even when we look at how many professing Christians define faith, faith is a leap in the dark. Faith is sentimentalism, sappiness. Faith is some kind of ecstatic experience. Faith is emotion. That's how faith is so defined today. It's disconnecting the heart from the mind, the emotions from the mind, and and living according to the emotions. That's how many define faith. But is this, how the, is this how the Bible defines the gift of faith? And the answer is no. Let's look at the Scripture itself. Notice Hebrews 11. And notice how Hebrews 11 situates faith in the mind. Faith is, is an expression, an exercise of the mind. The writer of Hebrews says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is no mere leap in the dark. This is a response to promises. It is a response that latches on to the promises with assurance that these things are true. And it is a conviction that though they are not yet realized, they are real. That's what faith is. Faith is not mere sentimentality. Faith is not mere zeal. In fact, Paul deals with this elsewhere as he deals with the false faith of his own countrymen going back again to the Jews. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he referred to them as having the veil over their minds. And in Romans chapter 10, he refers to them as having a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, the faith of his countrymen, the the Jews, was a false faith. It was not a biblical faith, regardless of the amount of zeal, regardless of the sincerity, this was no true faith. It was not pleasing to God. It was zeal without knowledge. And biblical faith is always full-on content. Biblical faith is always known for the knowledge upon which it is based. Now, the Scriptures, when we look at them, show us, if we would study all of Scripture, and would show us that we can take the concept of faith and put it into three components. And let's do this really quickly. How can we look at faith and its, its ingredients? Theologians have noted three ingredients in true biblical faith. First of all, and they've used Latin terms for this, you've probably heard this before. First of all, there is the concept of notitia. Notitia. And this is the first level. It doesn't equate with all of faith, but it is an ingredient of faith. And notitia is the acknowledgement of the facts of God's Word. In other words, notitia acknowledges what God has said and says, yes, this is in God's Word. This is God's Gospel. This is God's revelation. This is what it says. It's the response when we say, I acknowledge and understand that these things are the facts about Jesus and the Gospel. But that's not enough because even the demons, as James chapter 2 says, even the demons have this kind of knowledge. They know. They know who Jesus is. 
This is not enough to save, but it is essential in salvation. Then there is a census, the ingredient in faith called a census. And it is not just an acknowledgement of the facts of God's word, but now it is a mental, it is an intellectual, it is a rational agreement with these facts of God's word, where the person says, yes, these things are true truth. These things are the truth. They are consistent with reality. What God has said in his word is real. That is what we would call a census. A census. When we agree with the facts as true, facts of divine revelation as true and real. But that too is not enough because biblical faith has one more ingredient. And it is the ingredient we call fiducia. Fiducia, it is the appropriation of the facts of God's Word. Not only is it the acknowledgement that God has revealed these things, not only is it the agreement that these things are true and real, but it is the appropriation of those things. When the person says, I embrace these facts as applicable to my own soul, they are exactly what I need These things are for me. That is fiducia faith. Faith that is beyond just mental awareness and agreement, but includes the embrace of these truths, the clinging on to them, the conviction, the steadfast hope in the promises of God. John Murray has defined faith then in this way. Faith is knowledge. There's the first element, notitia. Faith is knowledge passing into conviction. There is the second element, the ascensus. And then it is conviction passing into confidence. Or as John Stott said, faith is a reasoning trust. A trust with reckon, which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Now in these two experiences, in both repentance and faith, notice how they arise out of the mind. Notice how these are experiences that take place in our minds as our minds experience the effect of regeneration. And this is why it's so important for this study, for us to properly situate this particular topic at the very beginning. You see, if we do not understand the necessity of regeneration, if we do not understand the role that regeneration accomplishes in the mind, we can talk about the mind, we can talk about logic, we can talk about the conscience, we can talk about reasoning, we can talk about Assurance in all of those things, and they matter not. Regeneration is the answer of God to the darkness of the mind. Regeneration is the hope that says that now right thinking is not only possible, it is inevitable. Regeneration. So how do we respond to this? A few quick thoughts as we close. Number one. Number one, you did not reason your way to Christ. You did not reason your way to Christ. If you're in Christ, 
This is so very plain and basic. You did not reason your way to Him. If left on your own, you would not be here today. If left on your own, you would not entertain any pleasing thought about God. No, it is God who through this miraculous, sovereign, radical, gracious act who reached into your darkness and turned the light on. Who reached into your deadness and gave you life. Who lifted the veil. Who gave you eyes to see. You did not reason your way to Christ. Christ gave you your reason. I like what Charles Spurgeon said on this. He said, I might preach to you forever. I might borrow the eloquence of Demosthenes or of Cicero. But you will not come unto Christ. I might beg of you on my knees with tears in my eyes and show you the horrors of hell and the joys of heaven, the sufficiency of Christ and your own lost condition, but none of you would come to Christ of yourselves unless the Spirit that rested on Christ should draw you. It is true of all men in their natural condition that they will not come unto Christ. Remember that. You did not reason your way to Christ. Number two, a wonderful reality that flows out of this is is as follows. You do not need to think the old way anymore. You do not need to think the old way anymore. If you're in Christ, your mind has been regenerated. So often, you'll, you'll hear men describe their challenges, their problems, and they'll talk about the thoughts in their mind and simply say, I can't help it. I can't help it. I, I'm just made this way. There's no other alternative. I'll just have these thoughts for the rest of my life. But the wonderful hope that regeneration gives is you don't need to think that way anymore. That darkened understanding has passed away. That inability and unwillingness to think God's thoughts after Him, that inability and unwillingness to love God with your mind, that's gone. Know that. You're not enslaved anymore to that dark mind. Stop telling yourself that lie. Don't think that way. The old patterns of thinking, the old way of making judgments, the old disposition, it's all passed away. The previous inability, it's passed away. It's been replaced by a new ability. Don't give in to the lie. You have no choice. You have no alternative. If you are in Christ, He has given you the ability. Number three, you do need to think the new way. You do need to think the new way. Regeneration has its effects on the mind. And this must be inevitable. You cannot remain in the old way of thinking. And so you must put on that new thinking more and more and more. You must... You must work together with the Spirit of God as He works and wills to His good pleasure, your growth. And you must see the new kind of thinking inhabit more and more and more of your daily thoughts. This is found, for example, in that chapter in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul said this, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus And then he goes on to say this, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have already been taught. You have already learned Jesus. 
And now you must continue that process of working out that reality in your daily thinking. You were once formerly in darkness, but now you are children of light, therefore walk accordingly. Number four, you must aim, you must aim at the mind in your gospel witness. You must aim at the mind in the gospel witness. The, the myth of, the, that's supposedly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, we don't really know whether he actually said that, but it's propagated today, and it's this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a myth. The, the truth is this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It must be directed at the mind. It must present truth. Paul goes on to say that in, in Romans chapter 10, earlier in, in Romans chapter 10, he says, How will they call upon him for salvation in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The gospel is going to be transmitted through knowledge, through the truth. And you be faithful in that and leave it to the Spirit of God to do the work of regeneration. Finally, you must boast in what your Lord has done. You must boast in what your Lord has done. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, meditate on this. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is what has taken place in you if you are in Christ. It is no less miraculous than in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 and God saying, let there be light and there was light. And He has done the same thing in you. You who were once dead, once darkened, once calloused, once bent on thinking every thought against God, He in His miraculous power has said, let light shine in the darkness. And that is why we worship. That is why we then praise. We must boast in what God has done. It is not our doing. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 and 31, but by His doing, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, just as it is written let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Man, this should be our anthem. This, is, this should be the song on our tongue day after day. Look at what my God has done. Look at how He has transformed my mind. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was dark, but now there's light. I once was blind, but now I see. Let's boast in what the Lord has done for us. As I close in prayer, let's prepare our hearts as we And tonight, we will sing a a hymn, All Glory Be to Christ. We will sing this hymn to give all the glory to Him who has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful truth that so 
sets you apart from us. On our part, darkness, gloom, callousness, perversity, filth, vileness, all of these things marked our minds. And there was not a hope for us to reason our way out of it, nor was there even the desire. And yet in that wonderful moment, that is so mysterious and in so many ways inexplicable, you reach down in grace, in your sovereignty, and you gave us life. And in that moment, the vile, perverse mind began to work. And in that moment, all of a sudden, we learned Christ. You taught Him to us. And for the first time, we, we apprehended Him. We, we saw His beauty. And we saw Him as our all in all. And the lights came on. And we've never been the same since. We give You praise for that and ask that now as we continue on this path of newness of life, that You would help us work out all of this reality in our daily thinking, in our exercise of our wills, and in the expression of our affections. We pray this giving all the glory to Jesus Christ. Amen.